Welcome to episode 66 of the Strength Running Podcast with a special co-host, British Olympic Trials qualifier and 11-time All-American, Tina Weir. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and I'm excited that I'll be having a co-host today. You see, I've been collecting all types of running questions over the last few weeks, and I decided to have my friend Tina Weir on to help me answer them all. You probably recognize Tina. She was a guest on the show in episode 31, so if you want to hear more from her, you can go back and listen to that episode. We had a really great conversation about her decision to stop training. She was recovering from amenorrhea and wanted to start a family. Well, now Tina has a daughter, and she's getting back into her training, and I feel like she got just what she wanted, and I just couldn't be happier for her. Uh, All right, so before we start today, please join me in thanking our new sponsor for this episode, Root Pepper. They're a new route planning app that allows you to create a running route and then get directions for that route directly from your earphones. You can go to rootpepper.com to download the free app and stop getting lost out there when you're running. Okay, on to today's episode. Tina and I are answering almost a dozen questions about Everything from walk breaks, tapering, compression socks, 5K training, Ragnar Relay training, estimating a runner's potential, and a lot more. I think you're going to like this really freewheeling discussion, and uh, hopefully you'll learn a lot, even if you didn't have one of these specific questions yourself. Uh, I think doing Q&A is one of the most effective ways of giving back to the running community, of spreading more knowledge about our wonderful sport and helping as many runners as possible with their training. So without further ado, please welcome my co-host for this episode, Ms. Tina Weir. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I'm here with Tina Weir, and we are going to do a bunch of running Q&A today. I have pulled all kinds of questions from Twitter and Facebook and email and other sources online, and so you are going to find something that really is going to speak to you today. So hopefully we cover a question that really helps you with your running. So Tina, thanks for being here. Thank you for joining me. I'm ex- I'm excited for this. I'm I'm a little bit nervous, though. I have to admit. I, what if it's something I don't know? I know. Well, we I I should tell our audience right now. Uh, I haven't shared any of the questions with you, so uh, this is going to be really interesting. We'll get our kind of unfiltered advice, <laughs> and um, you know, these are questions that span all kinds of different topics, from injuries to race strategy to just general training. We're really going to cover a lot. So uh, without further ado, let's start. Our first question comes from Rodrigo, and Rodrigo wants to know, since I only have time to run three times a week, should all my workouts be hard workouts? And is it possible to have serious running goals when you only run three times a week? This is an interesting one. So let me start with the second part of this question. Is it possible to have serious running goals when you only run three times a week? I'm of the mind that the more you run, the better you're going to be. So mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, if you do have serious running goals and you really want to commit yourself to them, you are going to have to run more than three days a week. With that said, I'm also a realist. If you literally cannot run more than three times a week because you travel a lot for your job, it's very demanding, maybe you have a large family, uh, you otherwise have all of these commitments, then there's not much you can do about that. And you can still 
you know, reach a lot of your goals with only running three times a week. I think you just have to prioritize uh, the most important work and just make sure that, you know, you're doing as much as you can on those days that you're not running to further your running goals. So in other words, you know, let's just not sit down for 12 hours a day and eat 8,000 calories, and that's obviously not going to be helping your running at all. So I think there's certain ways to do things that are going to help you reach your goals. Um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, for this particular runner, I'd say, let's try to push it to four to five days of running. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I still think it's possible. Yeah, there's a there's a big jump between three, three to even four, or especially three to five days a week, you, you're going to see vast improvements that even if the fourth and fifth days are significantly shorter or, um, you know, just little bits you can cram in, or even if they're maybe, I don't know, biking to work or biking somewhere, maybe you have to get a few little groceries. You can bike to the store and get yourself something. But, uh, yeah, I think you're right in, in that way. And I would ask when you say serious running goals, Rodriguez, what does that mean? You know, for me, I've always been someone who is very against people putting time restrictions on goals saying I have to do it on this day, I have to do it then. So serious running goals can mean different things to different people, you know, within yourself. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a a running goal, but it just may take you a little bit longer to get there because your body's going to need more time, more years to kind of put those miles to accumulate to actually allow you to get somewhere. Um, now, obviously, if it's going to be something like a marathon or an ultra marathon, uh, it's going to be quite difficult to get to where you want to go, uh, or probably a level that you would consider um, a big goal. But at the same time, maybe your big goal is to, you know, make it across the finish line. In which case, yes, it probably could be done. So, I'm sorry, I kind of jumped over your. No, I, I appreciate you doing so because I was uh, I, I I just love your perspective on things, Tina, and and I like that you uh, kind of wanted more information on what is a serious running goal. I mean, mm-hmm. if if I showed up to cross country practice my freshman year in college and I said I can only run three times a week, uh, I wouldn't be allowed to be on the team. Mm. Uh, if my serious running goal is qualifying for Boston or running my first marathon. That's going to be really hard with just three days a week of running. Um, So, you know, the word serious is very subjective. And, you know, for this runner, maybe he can achieve all of his serious running goals with just three times a week. Um, But I think it's just going to be challenging, I I think, is what Mm -hmm. we're both getting at. Uh, Let's talk about the first part of his question, which is, you know, should all of those runs, if there's only three per week, should be hard workouts? You know, I I might say, you know, let's split it up. Let's do one really specific workout for the race that you're training for. Let's do a long run. And then that third run, I'm probably, you know, I kind of want to do like uh, a medium length run or an easy workout for that second Mm -hmm. day of the week. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm very hesitant about having runners do high quality running for all of their running. And I do consider a long run a high quality run. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, again, a lot of it for me is going to come down to when you say three times a week, are you talking about you work all week and you can't do it during the week. So you have two runs on the weekend and then maybe one other day, in which case I think that definitely applies what you just said right there, that that third run should be an easy run. Um, and maybe you can get away with a workout and then a long run. And then the other one being a somewhat harder run or medium run. But if they're spread out, if it's let's say Monday, Wednesday, 
you know, Saturday, then maybe you can get away with doing a little bit more of an up-tempo day on that third day. But I definitely agree with you there that one of the days should be specific, one of the days should be longer, and one of the days should be, you know, either a medium run, like you said, or something like a run with a fartlek in it or something that has no structure to it really other than, you know, like 10 by one minute, just something to kind of keep some pep in your step or even just an easy run with some strides afterwards. I love it. All right, let's move on to our next question. Uh, this is about runners who uh, incorporate a walk break into their running. Mm-hmm. How can these folks advance to all running without hurting themselves? I have some certain thoughts on this. But Tina, I'd love for you to start on this one. Yeah, well, the first thing I want to say is that I feel like um, people who do take walk breaks in their running feel like they're not real runners. You're not members of the club. You're, you know, kind of out there and you're just kind of an outsider basically but if you think about it runners of every level do have uh maybe not walk breaks although sometimes it is but they will do intervals which is essentially what you're doing so even though you might feel like you're not doing enough or you're not like cool enough because you're not doing a continuous run every runner of every level is going to do intervals at some point and i when i do my hard uh, intervals or even when i used to when i was at my you know, very peak, um, I would still do intervals and I would walk in parts of those. So firstly, don't shoot yourself down. Like you have to get to continuous. If you enjoy doing the short bursts with walk breaks, don't feel like you have to be pressured into continuous runs. But I do get that, you know, that's something that if it's empowering and it feels good to know that it's continuous. So I would just kind of say to, to gradually keep increasing the amount of time you spent running and the decreasing the amount of walk breaks. So let's say right now you're doing, um, one minute of running and two minutes of walking or three minutes of running and two minutes of walking. You want to cut down. So it's maybe 90 seconds of walking. Um, and then you want to cut it down so that eventually it's only 30 seconds of walking, kind of the, um, Jeff Galloway method, um, of just being a short little break. And, uh, eventually you'll kind of get to the point where, yeah, when it's 30 seconds, it shouldn't be that much harder to, you know, remove that last 30 seconds, especially if you've got up to the point where it's maybe run 10 minutes and walk 30 seconds or walk a minute, you're not too far away. So I would, you can either pick which end you want to go for either increasing the run and, uh, keeping the rest or the walk kind of the same, or you can kind of just keep decreasing the amount of time that you're spending, um, walking until it's zero and then gradually building up the amount of time continuous running from there. But what would you say there? Was I completely confusing you, Jason? No, I think that's great advice. Uh, I think, <laughs> you know, basically what you're saying is, you know, let's reduce walking the same way that we try to get faster. We gradually mm-hmm. over time try to increase our capacity for more work. And yep. that's that's essentially what we're doing. Um, you know, my thoughts on, on walk breaks and running is that, you know, I think they are a wonderful tool to help runners get used to running right at the beginning of their running journey. Mm-hmm. So beginners, particularly runners who might be starting uh, in middle age or who are kind of going from, you know, couch to run, who don't have uh, a long history of athletics participation, then those walk breaks might be really necessary to, you know, keep their heart rate down and make sure that, you know, an easy run is in fact easy. But, you know, just like we learn to ride a bike with training wheels, you know, I think at a certain point we do have to take them off and, you know, really try to run most of our mileage. Because I think if you've been running for years and you stop every 10 minutes to do a 30 Mm -hmm. second walk Mm -hmm. break, 
I don't think you need to walk because mm-hmm. at that point, you know, after a couple minutes, your heart rate, as long as your pace is consistent, isn't going to continue to increase, you know, until you reach your max. If the effort is consistent, your heart rate is going to level off. And, you know, the real goal is get to a fitness level where the point at which your heart rate levels off during an easy effort is comfortable. And you can maintain that for, you know, an hour or hour and a half or whatever your your run might be or, or a lot shorter than that. Do you think any part of that is mental, though, kind of the idea of saying, oh, I can't believe I'm going to run for half an hour. Like, that's way too long. Like, it, it makes me think of when I coached at LaSalle University, we would have the middle distance, the 800 meter runners do what we called a lane eight tempo, where they would uh, run uh, in lane eight. They would run all but 10 meters, I think it was, um, of a lap and they would walk that 10 meters and then do it again. And they would do it for the equivalent of three to four miles. But for them, that little tiny walk break was enough to make them feel like they were doing intervals, which, you know, middle distance sprinters kind of like, but, um, it tricked them mentally because really that 10 seconds, uh, or 10 steps they got was nothing. So do you think any part of it is mental? I think a huge part of it is mental. Absolutely. I think, you know, the runner who is kind of setting themselves up to crave and need those walk breaks, I I think there's, you know, uh, uh, almost like a a mental addiction to them. It's like Mm -hmm. they uh, they think that they're getting all this recovery out of a a short walk break. But, you know, like like this is an actual example. Someone, you know, within the last week or two asked me about walk breaks and they were stopping once every 10 minutes for a 30 second walk break. For that kind of a runner, yes, I think walk breaks are this kind of mental crutch that they're using to get through a run. I think at that point you don't need to run, you don't need to stop and walk at all. Um, but you know, if you are, do you if you feel like you need to stop and walk every minute or two minutes or three minutes, then at that point it might be a little bit more physical. Um, but yeah, I think if we can get runners to the point where they are mentally strong enough to get through a thirty minute run, then they're not only going to be better runners, but they're going to have more confidence in their abilities. And I think they're going to get more enjoyment out of the sport just because they're, you know, they have this idea that they're doing more. and, And I think that's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to another one. Um, This question starts off with, I've always struggled with tapering before a marathon. I understand Mm -hmm. the logic that you're supposed to rest more before a big race, and you're not going to gain any further fitness benefits from training hard, but I always feel like I'm not doing enough and I'm losing fitness during that taper period. Do you have any advice for me? Okay, um... Firstly, I totally get it. We all do. Um, you know, it's very easy to fall in that mindset to to essentially trust that you have done enough that, as they say, the hay is in the barn and, you know, to push out that voice saying that um, you are losing fitness. And, and especially, I don't know about you, Jason, and I don't know about the listeners, but that workout the week before or especially the week of, you often feel the last thing you do that's hard, you feel terrible. You feel like, how am I possibly going to run this pace? How am I going to handle this? I can't even do this workout, which is supposed to be quote unquote easy and I'm struggling. Um, and it's very easy to, to let it, you know, run away with you in your mind. And, and so that doesn't help the situation. It doesn't help the situation that we often feel dead, heavy legged and tired all week during taper. So I'm sure in the past, um, to the, to the listener's question, you have felt tired, which is probably, you know, conditioned that response to you to make you think, well, that's probably why I'm, you know, um, 
you know, make you think that, yes, I am losing fitness because I feel so bad right now. But remember that your body is storing up. Um, it is a bit confused. It's wondering what's going on. You were, you know, pushing it so hard and now you're backing away. But at the same time, it needs that that rest kind of uh, to get stronger. You know, there's so many situations where we, we push through, which is great. But, um, you know, we, we all need a rest to allow ourselves to reach that level where we can dig down and just really give it your all. So you have to kind of remind yourself, when do you want to feel the best? It's the whole thing of, um, you know, would you rather be a tiny bit less fit, but end up healthy and ready to go on race day? Or would you rather kind of keep pummeling through, but then end up running out of steam halfway through your race because you've essentially left it out in your training? So, you know, I, I get that it's scary and I probably didn't really even answer the question there, probably just more giving mental reassurance that it's okay to feel crappy during taper and it's okay not to feel good. But it really is going to make a difference. And I'm sure, Jason, you have more of the science behind it than I do. I kind of just give the, the pep talk here. <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure if we need much of the science. I mean, there's there's obviously we can talk about the stress adaptation cycle. We can talk about how, you know, you've just undergone weeks and months of high stress training. And, you know, while you're building in recovery and opportunities to adapt to that training throughout the training cycle, the taper is really like that recovery effort, uh, you know, uh, taken up to a whole new level. I was going to say taking uh, that recovery, you know, like on steroids, but maybe we'll stay away from the steroid <laughs> yeah. analogies when yep. we're talking about running. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I think that, you know, the science is important to recognize and understand. Uh, I like to tell my athletes that when you line up on race day, that you have to trust your training. You've done the work. You have to trust that that training has given you the adaptations to reach your goals. Um, I think a the flip side to that coin is that you also have to trust your recovery. If you do a hard 20-mile run, you know that if you get a couple nights of great sleep, you spend some time on the foam roller, you eat a great diet, uh, lower stress in your life, stay hydrated, you know that in a couple days you're going to feel much, much better. The same thing is going to happen after a taper. I think mm -hmm. runners start to get, I don't want to say addicted, but they start to feel like I'm not fit or I'm not building fitness if I don't feel sore or tired mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. something like that all the time. Now, that's a great feeling when you are, you know, in the middle of your marathon cycle and you're putting in high mileage and hard workouts and long runs and everything that encapsulates your training. That's what you want. You want your body to be in kind of like a perpetually stressed state um, so that, you know, you can get those adaptations. But when you take a two-week taper or maybe a three-week taper, you're not going to be in that state. You're going to be running a lot less. Uh, your intensity will probably be maintained, but you know, with a reduction of your volume of 20, 30, 40%, you're going to feel like you're on vacation. You're going to feel like you're not even training at all. And uh, that is what you want, even though it feels weird, it doesn't feel normal, you don't feel the same uh, heaviness in your legs, which kind of has been signaling to you that you're in shape. You're still in shape. It takes way longer than a week or two for you to lose all your fitness. In fact, you know, it takes about two weeks for your aerobic fitness to start to erode. But that's two weeks off completely. You're still doing workouts. You're still running and maintaining that fitness that you've so patiently built 
felt over those last couple months. So from my perspective, it's just trust the recovery, trust that, you know, all athletes are tapering before their race. It is a tried and true method. And it's just something where I think a lot of runners just simply have to get out of their own way and yeah. allow that process to happen. Absolutely. Great advice. Okay, let's move on to another question. Um, this one's on compression socks. Um, I get questions about com compression socks more often than I thought I probably would. Um, <laughs> and, and I think the, the question is, you know, are they going to help my running? And let me start with this one. I'll, I'll talk about, I think, the two benefits of compression socks or really the two claims that compression sock companies will make to runners. And that's number one, it's going to improve your recovery. And mm -hmm. potentially, number two, that it's going to improve your performance. Now, my understanding of the science, the, the studies that kind of look at these questions is that if you wear compression socks during a race, you're not going to run any faster. Uh, I think some of the claims that compression sock companies make is, you know, something along the lines of it's going to reduce some of that small muscle vibrations and that's going to reduce muscle damage. And, you know, in a long race, you know, even maybe 10K on the track, something where, you're, you know, you're really hammering for a long time, then that can give you some added advantage. I'm not sure I buy that. I'm not sure if the research says that. I, I haven't really heard any anecdotal evidence. So I, I'm not sure if I'm going to go all in on that statement. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the recovery benefits, I think, are pretty clear. Compression socks do... Um, improve blood flow to the legs. And we know that extra blood flow is uh, really helpful for that recovery process. It clears waste products. It brings new uh, nutrients to the area from, you know, freshly oxygenated blood. So I, I think there's a lot to be said about strategically using compression socks after a hard workout or a long run or race to just boost that recovery process. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really wear them personally. I think I I did maybe, you know, five plus years ago, I think around 2010, 2012, when they were uh, a little bit more popular. But, you know, I, I haven't really found too much use for them in my own training. What about you, Tina? Um, well, firstly, you're talking to, to the right person about this, not because I'm, I'm some uh, compression socks nerd who has just, a, you know, dove into all the research. I definitely did look into the research and, and, you know, to, you've obviously answered the question there. Does it help you running? Yes. But in a roundabout way, it doesn't help you run faster, but it helps you recover faster, which helps you run faster. But for me, that was where it originally came from, um, that I read about that and I was interested in that. And then I think as someone who has, who used to have shin issues for years, like over and over again, uh, the compression socks, I will say did seem to, um, kind of, I don't know if it was psychological, but it seemed to like hold my calf together a bit more like so that it kind of like those Zenza calf sleeves. They, I, I feel like they had the ridges in the right area that pushed the muscle together so that it didn't bother me as much. So I will say that if someone has lots of calf issues, it might be worth a try. Now, as you mentioned, the claims, whether you can actually say, you know, um, they are working in a particular way, especially with this, there being so many brands and so many styles. But for me, I definitely would say those Zenza car sleeves did help me. Now, I mentioned I was the right person to ask. I actually have raced with compression socks for every race since probably 2000 and God, I want to say 2010 because I just 
started off as that thing of um, they, you know, when you said they were fashionable or whatever, it's particularly fashionable. Uh, I started off with the trends, you know, I, I want to wear these and I just kept wearing them. And then they became a psychological thing. Part of my pre-race routine, I would put on my compression socks and it was just part of my racing style. So for me, even though the the benefits, who knows how good they really are. For me, they help me get in the zone, help me feel like I'm putting something on that is going to help. So if someone else is in the same boat and it can help you feel like essentially you're putting your hero outfit on, you know, that's part of your change of clothes to be a superhero, then, uh, you know, go for it. That's kind of all I would add, really. Yeah. And that's the psychological side of things, which yeah. we should not discount whatsoever. Um, I think, you know, it's like uh, ice baths. Ice baths have really never been proven to improve recovery, but many runners swear by them. And mm -hmm. if the placebo effect is working there, then, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the Why mind that it? if you think it's working, then it's working. Let's just keep doing it. Exactly. All right, let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about training specifics. Uh, I got a question recently about training for the 5K. And the question was, if you're training for a 5K and you have to miss a few runs during a given week, what are the, quote, non-negotiable or most important runs of the week that you should absolutely try to get in? Um, now, let's just remember this is someone training for the 5K. What do you think, mm -hmm. Tina? I still think a longer run is important. Um, I don't think you can discount it and just squeeze in all the hard stuff because even if a longer run for a 5K is, you know, maybe, I don't know, 8, 10 miles, uh, maybe even less, I still think that's very important. And my husband, who is the brains behind my operation, everything I've learned, I've learned from him, um, he has always really valued the long run um, for his cross country and track teams. And that's always what I believe one of the keys to um, the athletes racing so well and myself racing well when I was doing 5Ks was even when I was doing 5Ks, I was racing 10, 12, 14 miles, which I, I mean, not racing, sorry, running 12, 12, 14 miles consistently. Um, now I do think that um, that is a major part, but obviously the, the speed work is also incredibly important so i would say keeping a longer run in and keeping um at least one of your workouts in there something that is specific um one of my favorite ones to do we um i used to do 16 to 20 400s on a track at what we called rhythm pace which is kind of uh, essentially your 10k pace 400s with about a minute recovery that was one of the key workouts I would do and I feel like that kind of style of workout where you're running maybe slightly slower than than your race pace but um getting down to about race pace but doing more of it is are the key kind of areas that I would focus on there what about you yeah I think uh I think when it comes to shorter distances like the 5k I think for me, you know, it's definitely the long run and the the faster quality session of the week. Those are definitely what I would consider the two non-negotiable, most mm -hmm. important runs of the week. We could probably debate whether or not the long run is more important or the faster workout. Um, you know, if, th if this was like an entire month, you know, maybe uh, you could only run once a week, you know, maybe let's alternate.
alternate, um, you know, a long run and a workout. But those are the two in my book that the runner is going to get more out of those workouts and uh, they're going to spur the most adaptations. So those are the runs that we should try to prioritize. But, you know, I think going back to the first question we answered, you can maintain your fitness, I think, for a little while, just running, you know, maybe two or three times a week, but not for a very long time. You know, you can yeah. only do that for maybe two weeks or so until, mm-hmm. you know, your your fitness really starts to erode. So I wouldn't do it for a very long time. But, you know, if you're on vacation or it's a crazy busy week for you, you got a million things going on, uh, you know, I would say maybe choose the long run or the faster workout. Uh, try to get in what you can elsewhere. But those should be your top two most prioritized runs of the week. Mm-hmm. And I just want to add one thing. If it is a work situation, now now is the vacation time, so it may well just be vacation. But if it is a work thing and you have lots of crazy stuff and, you know, you never know, like, you know how study breaks actually help you be more productive. And we think that, you know, studying all night is going to help us be better. But actually, if you kind of stop, let your body process and, and kind of, um, you know, start again in the morning or take a break, um, you're going to get more out of it. The same thing with if you've got a crazy week at work, maybe having a short run, even if it's something small, might give you that mental break and allow you to process what's going on at work so that you can actually be more productive and get more done. So I would, even if you can just squeeze in 20 minutes, 10 minutes, it it might actually help you um, to deal with that if this is a work situation that you're talking about. Yeah. And even just a 10 minute run is going to be great for your mental health. It's just going to be helpful for you just to loosen up and feel a little better. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I would say lose 10 minutes of sleep to get in a 10 minute run because that is if the alternative is no run at all, you're going to feel a lot better. Okay, let's talk about training for a Ragnar relay. I have never done one of these. I don't <laughs> know if you have. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, how do you think about training someone for a Ragnar relay? So, is the Ragnar relay the one where you you run a you know two hundred miles or something as a team and you kind of pass off? Is that that's Ragnar relays? Yes, I think it's essentially like within a 24 hour time period, probably going to have three runs that are anywhere from five to maybe 10, 12 miles. Okay. And it, you said uh, it was, um, what's the training for that? Was yeah. How would, how would okay. you approach training for an event like that? Because it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because you're not necessarily running as fast as you could. Uh, a lot of folks, you know, do try to compete by time, but a lot of folks just want to do it because it's fun. They get to hang out with their running friends for a day. Uh, they just want to make sure that they can run, you know, maybe 20 miles in a 24 hour time period and three different runs. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think one key is going to be maybe getting used to running two a day is maybe splitting some of your runs up, um, you know, over the course of the few months beforehand, um, breaking it down into two runs that you do one in the morning, one in the evening, you know, that's a good way of practicing essentially what you're going to be doing. And then maybe you could do the same thing on a Sunday, maybe, maybe taking your Saturday and Sunday runs and turning them into to four runs rather than two. Um, I think that's probably going to be something important. I would maybe keep your workouts the same as you were going to, maybe the ones you do midweek, doing them the same, and maybe even keeping the long run the same, 
just because that's still going to build your endurance and, and going to build your you know fitness essentially and those are still going to be important things if you do want to run your best for these relays but I would maybe consider kind of breaking up some of the easier runs into two shorter runs see what happens but I don't know I mean I've never even I've never even thought about this so this is one that not knowing beforehand I'm kind of like hmm like you know I'm, I'm sure I'll have a different answer in a few hours but um, for now that's probably what I would consider my best suggestion but what do you think well I, I think it's definitely important to get used to the two a days on because you know you are going to be running basically three times in a 24 hour time period. And, and that yeah. is a little bit more jarring to the body. If you've never run twice in a day, you know, you have to get used to the feeling of, you know, not having a night of sleep in between your runs. Uh, and cause that's a, a significant obstacle in your way of, of feeling good. Uh, the way I think about this is for the runner who just wants to complete the mileage, they just want to have fun with their friends. Uh, I look at the total amount of mileage that they're going to be running during the Ragnar. So, you know, maybe it's 10 or 12 miles total. Um, you know, a lot of the runs might be three to seven miles. You start adding them up and they're, you know, in, in the kind of lower range, mm-hmm. you know, for, in that case, I would say train like you would for a half marathon. You know, if you can get your long run up to somewhere around 10 to 13 miles uh, at a minimum, then you're going to be someone who can adequately prepare and train and complete a Ragnar relay. If you're someone who's going to be running the longer legs, so let's say maybe you're running 17, 20 miles uh, total over those three runs, then, you know, I would maybe train like you're training to complete a a 20 mile run um, because I think or a 20 mile race rather. So, you know, definitely get your long runs up to, you know, 20, maybe 21 miles, just so that, you know, you're really comfortable with the total distance and working on breaking that up into several runs a couple times during the training cycle so that, you know, you a are physically prepared for it, but also, you know, just mentally are ready for what that is going to feel like is important. And then I think for, you know, those runners who just want to hammer every single one of those, those, uh, those legs that they're going to run, you know, that's when we start getting into super complex kind of more advanced training. Uh, I'd still kind of look at the total mileage and maybe train this person like a half marathoner or, or a marathoner somewhere you know, along those lines, just adding in some of those two a days and workouts that are geared toward the distance of the legs that they're going to run. Uh, And I think that'll give those athletes a good chance of having a really great performance at the Ragnar. But, you know, it's it's certainly, um, you know, these things are are not normal races. Uh, I don't think there are established ways to train for it, uh, Mm -hmm. nor do I think there is kind of like a right way to train yeah, for it. You could do it so yeah. many different ways. Yeah. We're going to we're going to get a little philosophical here, Tina. I hope you're ready. <laughs> um, my mom brain is in effect. I don't know if I'll have the uh, brain power, but we'll see. <laughs> well, my father of three brain is is turned off, so <laughs> Okay, is, okay, you win. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. How do you estimate what a runner's potential is? Uh, this is a question I always struggle with because, you know, an athlete will ask me, "I just started running. What do you think I can do?" in the 5k six months from now or what can i do in the marathon three months from now and uh i I very frequently find myself saying i have no idea so tina how do you think about this one yeah that's a difficult one because there's so many you know there's so many people that i know who have maybe started running and their first marathon was 
you know, four hours and now they're running, you know, 240. So, you know, when they did that four hours, if you'd have asked what their potential was, you would have been like, oh, you know, maybe one day you can run three and a half or something. But no, like they could have gone far beyond that. So it's very difficult without some kind of experience. Um, And I would say runners need at least a year um, under their belt of of training um, before you can even think about answering that question. But I am very much against kind of setting big time goals, again, especially within a time frame. So I would kind of say to um, as much as this is not the answer that they want to hear, um, to just focus on doing your best for every race, you know, crossing that finish line with a smile on your face, thinking I could not have given any more. I'm proud of myself. Um, you know, do the, the vision work beforehand, envisioning yourself crossing the finish with a smile and then doing it. You know, I gave my best. I had nothing left to give other than obviously we are runners and we're always going to have that. What if, but you know, deep down, you know, you gave your best, And, you know, allow yourself to have that first year or that year from when you decide to take training seriously to really see what you're you're made of. And then I would say, you know, a lot of it comes down to to gut feeling as well. After that year, maybe look at a time and let's say you've run, I don't know, 23 minutes in the 5K. 20 minutes may seem absolutely impossible. Or if you're a four hour marathoner, maybe breaking 3.30 might seem absolutely impossible. But I don't think there's anything wrong with setting a lofty goal, something that is absolutely terrifying that you think you're never going to do. I mean, my goal of running for Great Britain took me 14 years to get there, but I did it and I knew I was going to do it. So I would maybe pick something that isn't so um, number based and instead make it something that like a, a Boston qualifier is a good one because you could say I want a Boston qualifier. And yes, okay, maybe you'd like to do it in your in the you know, the main age group, but maybe you end up doing it when you're, you know, uh, 67 years old. Um, so you can kind of, there's different ways that it can kind of come out essentially. Like for me, that great Britain Jersey could have been when I was a master's triathlete or something. So kind of maybe pick something that can be adapted and isn't so set in, in, in numbers. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that. Um, Definitely a different answer than I'm going to give. And that's why I love having a co-host with these. So runners can get varying perspectives on these things. So my answer is that uh, I I think it's really difficult to tell, especially if that person has only been running for a couple of years. Um, And my suggestion is to always focus on the process of training. Let's just do the best training that you can do based on your current fitness level. Then you run a race and you see where you're at. And then the goal becomes, okay, I want to improve. That's good advice. It's just improve. It's just, I want to get better at the time that I ran in that race or the place that I ran and all the sub goals behind that are really training based. It's process based. It's I'm going to get better at the things that are going to help me get better. So I'm going to uh, gradually increase my mileage. I'm going to do more strategic workouts. Uh, I'm going to be more consistent. I'm going to really focus on injury prevention so that I don't have to miss all this time with injuries. Uh, I'm going to incorporate strength training into my training. There's so many different things that we can do in our training to help us mm-hmm. reach higher levels of performance. And it's difficult to know what your 
potential might be, what your max performance might be uh, when you're a beginner. So I, I think for those runners who are beginner, intermediate, you know, who haven't really reached what quote high levels of performance, you know, focus on the process, focus yeah, on yeah. the training. And then when you race, when you start getting that concrete feedback about your fitness level, you can use that to then make some more concrete race goals. Cause that's yeah. really kind of how you do it. Uh, you, you look at your racing performances and you go, okay, well, I want to get better on that. And you use, you know, equivalent performances across different race distances to estimate mm-hmm. what you think you could do in other races. But at the end of the day, you're just training as hard as you can, focusing on the process, doing the little things and just trying to get better at getting better. Yeah, I love that. That that's really good advice. Okay. Um here's one that uh I don't really know much about. So, I'm glad I have you here, <laughs> Tina. Uh-oh. Uh what do you do when you're out there and you get a muscle cramp? Hmm. When so when you're in the moment where it happens. Yeah, um let's just say you're out there, you're on a long run or just out run around the neighborhood and your your muscle cramps up. Say it's your calf muscle. Uh, okay. what do you do? Cuz this is something that it doesn't really happen to me personally and uh you know, I'm not too well read up on the topic. No. And I actually, I would say same thing. I haven't had a muscle cramp in, I don't know if I, the last time I remember having, and I did have it once when I was pregnant. I do remember that. But other than that, I I think I've had it once in my life in a swimming pool and that's all I remember. But, um, the, I, I know the, um, the key thing you need to do is stop and elongate that muscle so if it's you know your calf muscle has cramped so that it's kind of pulling up which it probably is then the best thing you can do is to stretch that muscle to get it to kind of let go and and relax essentially now on that note actually when I did I remember now you just reminded me of this when it did happen when I was pregnant it was in the middle of the night and I started screaming to my husband I said I got a cramp I got a cramp what do I do and he said pull your toes up, pull your toes up. And I did. And I was like, it's not working. And then, so he was like, point your toes, point your toes. And, and so we were kind of having an argument while I was like screaming at him in the night (laughs) off topic. But so I, I, I might have that the wrong way around, but, um, I know it hurts. So that's, that was my point of that. But yeah, I, I know you stop and stretch it, but as for other things to do in the moment, I, you know, I guess you can stop and massage it um, wherever you feel that knot. I found it helpful when this happened to me to just jam my finger in there and kind of hold it essentially until it let go. But I think getting it to stretch is going to be the quickest way. Now, it's probably going to be a little bit sore afterwards. So, you know, maybe either walk for a few minutes or slow down your pace. If you're doing a workout, I would maybe consider backing out because that calf is going to be essentially you know hurt a little bit from um it grabbing like that so you might need to take you know the rest of the day off or even a few days off so don't be afraid of that but if that is the case um i do know often with cramps people think it's you know um electrolytes or not having enough salts which maybe that is the case in which case you know there are plenty of drinks um i personally love enduro packs they have a liquid electrolyte spray so i use that to prevent cramps but a lot of the time cramps are not actually to do with fueling related they're actually to do with you're pushing your body further than it is ready to go which is why people often get it you know around miles 20 to 23 of a marathon because they've pushed their body at a pace that it's not quite ready for so i would go back and look back on your training look back at what you've been doing and consider where you can make a change so that it doesn't happen again 
So I'm sure you have more advice for this that's going to actually be helpful. Mine's kind of more of a personal experience. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that I do, uh, and I think that does speak to the difficulty of this question. Is just because mm-hmm. muscle cramps, you know, are are kind of a tricky thing to treat in the moment. You know, if yeah. you you are out on a run and you get a muscle cramp, you might just be done running for the day and potentially a, a few days more, simply because when your muscle involuntarily contracts like that during a cramp, it contracts way harder than you can actually contract it yourself. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there is mm-hmm. some damage to the muscle and you might need some some recovery afterward. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you that, you know, electrolytes typically aren't the cause of most muscle cramps in a race situation. And, you know, you used a marathon example, which I think is a great one because it's so common. Um, you know, if runners are cramping in the later stages of a marathon, it's probably be because they made uh, an error or a mistake with their marathon preparation or racing. Mm-hmm. It's number mm-hmm. one, they're not prepared for the distance. So let's say they only got up to 17 miles for their long run. Uh, this is their first marathon and they're cramping at mile 20 or 21 of the race. Well, you're just not prepared to run the distance. Um, you know, the other reason could be if, you know, you're trained for the marathon and you can probably run around 3:30, but your first five miles were at three hour flat pace. Well, if you get a cramp later in the race, it's probably because you went out too fast and you're asking too much of your body. So, you know, I I think it's much more productive to look at the reasons why cramps happen, which is essentially asking your body to do too much before it's ready for it and trying to limit or reduce your exposure to those uh, risky situations where you could Mm -hmm. get a cramp in the first place. Okay. Um, Let's do one more question before we wrap up here. Uh, This is going to be a a good one about pacing. How do you determine pacing for the long run? And uh, kind of a sub question to that is, does it depend on your goal race? So here, let me let me start, Tina. I think mm-hmm. the long run is something I, I think about a lot just because I think it's such a valuable workout like we were talking about earlier for, you know, runners training for, you know, any distance. If you're training for the mile or an ultra, long run is such a critical workout for you to do during the week. So um, pacing for the long run, you know, I typically look at long runs as glorified easy runs. They're not recovery runs. You know, they're not going to be a three, four, five mile, super easy run the day after a hard workout, um, but they're also not structured faster workouts. You you know, you're not going to be running your long runs at a tempo effort, for example. But with that said, it's also not going to be at a recovery pace. So the pace is kind of this, this easy, but not necessarily as slow as you can go type of a pace. You know, I think for beginners, a lot of them are running their long runs as the slowest run of the week. And I think that's fine. But I, I think once you develop a little bit more capability, you have to recognize that the long run is not a recovery run. Therefore, I don't think it should be the slowest run of the week. You're going to get a little bit more aerobic bang for your buck if you run it, you know, at a at a normal easy pace rather than a very very easy recovery pace. And I think that is just speaking to kind of a, a standard typical long run. For more advanced runners, you're going to start putting some quality into your long runs. You're going to yeah. start, you know, adding goal marathon marathon paced miles or fartleks or, you know, any other of almost unlimited variations of workouts that you could add into those long runs based on whatever goal race that you're training for. But essentially, you know, I look at them as as just a, another easy run. It's just a lot longer. Mm-hmm. So I 
as most people who know me, and I, I think you probably know this by now, just knowing me, um, I am a big proponent of not looking at your watch, not knowing your paces during any of your runs, really, but particularly um, those long runs and easy runs. I'm definitely a fan of not looking at your watch or no watch me, as I call it, which is saying not necessarily don't wear a GPS, but don't look at it because you can freak yourself out. And I particularly found this to be the case with long runs, because let's say you were, um, you know, doing your long run and uh you were feeling good and you thought, you know, I actually feel quite good today. And, um, you're running along, you're feeling very comfortable, you're feeling strong. And then you look down at your watch and you see it's way faster than your race pace. And then you think, uh Oh, I'm going to blow up. I'm going to blow up. You know, I'm not going to make it through this run. How am I going to make it the last few miles? I'm so tired. This is so hard. And you psych yourself out. Now I've done that myself. I distinctly can see in my mind's eye a, a time where I was thinking that uh, or you can do it the other way maybe you look down at your what or you feel like you're really struggling today you feel like you must be going really fast and uh, you know if you're not then you're in trouble how are you ever going to make it through your race if you can't make it through this long run and then you look down and it's slower than you think and you think oh I better pick it up because I need to be able to run faster than this for race day I need to you know get myself ready and you pick it up and you you push your body when it's not ready and it and it feels worse and you end up feeling worse. You feel terrible about yourself. So I personally believe that everyone has the ability to learn how to pace themselves in long run and to know what that natural pace is of what they should be running. But you just have to practice it. And if you think about it, even 20 years, we didn't 20 years ago, we didn't have GPS watches. People just went out and ran. I mean, um, we've added so much complicating and, and overthinking to to our long runs. Um, now, that's not to say that I don't think there should be some quality in those long runs, as you mentioned. And there's many ways you can do it. You know, um, the progressive one where you pick it up each time you pick it up as you go along. There's the one you mentioned with doing fartleks or little pickup bits in the middle. But again, I, I believe all of this should be effort. Um, I talk a lot about what I call the effort scale. So uh, on a number from one to 10. So, you know, to kind of differentiate between how hard you should be going. But even if you were going to do it getting faster with every mile, it shouldn't be, I'm going to run this pace for the next mile and this pace for the next mile. It should be just slowly like imagining yourself kind of like being on a spin bike, you know, that they tell you to do one and a half rotations or whatever. And it always feels so much harder not doing it that way, but kind of just imagine yourself slowly turning the dial over over the course of the long run so that it is getting harder but it's not really that noticeable and it's just kind of building on at a rate that you can mentally and physically keep on top of it so I would say that running without your watch is often uh, or not looking at your watch you can look at it afterwards you can go nuts on the Strava data afterwards if you want to but um, I would suggest people get used to um, learning and listening to their own body signals in training and especially in long runs that's a good time to practice it first um and if you do make some mistakes well you've learned it now so you don't need to make it in the race so you can learn how that feels to be going the right pace and how it feels to be going too fast so um that's pretty much what i would say yeah i like that and especially because uh you know you're basically replacing the word pace with effort you're telling runners to run exactly. at what 
I'm intuiting is a is an easy effort, but that is very subjective, and and I think that's a good thing. I think a lot of runners want to move away from any kind of subjectivity. They don't want to uh, they don't want their coach to say run four miles at an easy effort. They want to say run four miles at eight thirty mile pace, yeah. and that's often really hard because the actual pace is influenced by whether or not you've had a cup of coffee and the weather, the humidity, how you're feeling, how well recovered you are. And, you know, the, the purpose is not to run 830 pace. The purpose is to run an easy effort. And if we can embrace a little bit more of that subjectivity, give up a little bit more control when we're out there running, I think we're going to enjoy our runs more. Mm. And we're just going to get a more intuitive feeling for our pacing and what certain paces feel like so that, you know, we can get in a race situation. And, you know, a race situation, of course, is an incredibly subjective experience. Uh, You know, you don't know what the weather is going to be like on race day. You don't know what your competition is going to do. You Mm -hmm. don't know if they're going to change the course beforehand. So by embracing more of that subjectivity, we can, I I think, better prepare ourselves for race day. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is our, our really long-winded way of saying yeah. uh, there's no perfect way of determining yeah. pace for your long run. Uh, it should be mostly an easy effort, I think. Uh-huh. Yep, I agree. Wonderful. Well, Tina, there we go. Uh, thanks so much for for lending some of your expertise, your perspectives on the podcast. Uh, I love having other podcasters on just because you guys, you're just so good at what you do. Definitely encourage our listeners to check out Running For Real, your podcast. Uh, really great. And, you know, this is... I think an interesting way for runners to be exposed to a lot of different questions that they might not have thought about asking themselves, but, you know, might relate to their running or um, just further educate them. So thank you. Yeah, great. Good idea. And there we have it. I hope this episode of question and answers with us two running coaches was helpful and possibly even entertaining. Might be asking too much with that, though. (laughs) Okay, before you go, uh, a big thanks to Root Pepper for making this show possible. If you travel a lot or you run in a lot of new places, you know how hard it can be sometimes to find a good route and then not get lost out there when you're running. It happened to me constantly when I was in Australia a few years ago, and uh, I would have really liked this when I was lost in the bush in 39 degrees Celsius weather. That certainly wasn't any fun. But that's where Root Pepper comes in. It lets you create road or off-road running routes directly in the app or from your desktop computer. Uh, And then those directions for those routes are spoken to you directly through your earphones. So you're not going to get lost. It works anywhere in the world. It's free. And it doesn't use any of your mobile data. It's available now in the App Store. Or you can go to rootpepper.com to learn more about it. Oh, and if you have a smartwatch that supports notifications, it will integrate with that too. So head on over to rootpepper.com to check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of the strength running community. And please don't be a stranger. If you have a question or a concern, you can always reach out to me personally through the strengthrunning.com website. Until next time.